Hi everyone, before we get started with this week's episode, I wanted to give a special thanks to Damian Scott for being on this week's show, speaking about his book, Rise of the Sleepwalkers. I also wanted to let you know that we recorded this podcast with a transatlantic call over FaceTime, essentially, and we did have a few moments of audio problems where the call dropped. So I edited around it as much as I could, but there will be a few interruptions, so thank you for bearing with those. I also just wanted to say that I'm very proud of this episode and extremely excited to share it with you. This book was amazing and he, you know, he did not pay me to say anything about it. (laughs) I bought the book with my own money and I honestly really did enjoy it. So I hope you all enjoy the conversation we have talking about it. It was so much fun to speak with the author himself and hear about his process and his life and his ideas. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, and when you're done, I hope you all go out and buy Rise of the Sleepwalkers. You can find it on Amazon. But without further ado, here is this week's episode with Damien Scott. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Top Shelf Lit. I'm your host, Leanna Spear, and this is the podcast where I talk about books with my friends. Today, we are joined by special guest, author of the Somnambula installments, Damien Scott, joining us all the way from the UK. So, Damien, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me onto, onto, your, um, onto your podcast. It's so nice to finally hear your voice after months of just communicating on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Um. Before we get started, I have a new segment for guests that are new to the show that I wanted to try out. Just some icebreaker questions to help us get to know each other. Okay. And the first is, do you have a favorite podcast that you listen to? You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm really not a very um, podcast sort of person. I'll probably say the main podcast I listen to um, is a podcast by a British um, magazine, I think you probably get it in the US as well, called Empire Magazine, which is a um, which is a movie magazine. So um, I'm kind of a bit of a movie buff for movie fans. That's probably one of the, the only ones I really listen to on a regular basis. Really? So, yeah. That's very exciting. I am also a big film fan. That's one of my passions and interests. And all of the podcasts that I listen to are film-related as well. Fine. Great. <laughs> um. So my second question is, do you have any favorite books or authors that you recommend I cover on this podcast? Oh, I'm, I'm probably a bit of a, an old traditionalist, actually. So a lot of my um, a lot of my favorite books are probably more sort of classic, um, older British uh, sort of English literature, I suppose. Things like um, Thomas Hardy. I live I live in Dorset, down on the south coast of, of England, and um, a lot of um, Thomas Hardy, which is kind of 18th century books were written about this area and around this area, very rural sort of um, set sort of dramas and about relationships and, and life um, in that time. So I, I love that. And Charles Dickens and those kind of, that, that kind of era and those kind of stories. Oh, um, that's great. Uh, probably, no, probably no one you can actually interview, sadly. They're all going to be long, long since gone. Oh, we've done Jane Austen. We've done a, yeah. a lot of American lit. We've done... Um, who did we have last time? Well, I don't know. We've done Dickens, but my, my best friend and I, uh, we went to college together and we, we were English majors together. And that was always our debate. Uh, she's a 
enormous Charles Dickens fan. And uh, <laughs> and I was always like, oh, Charles Dickens is overrated. <laughs> never. No, you're right. You're right. And it'd be, I've never been to England, so it'd be so much different reading those stories having been in those places. Right. You'd love it. It's great. The weather, <laughs> you know, the weather's a little worse, you know, it's a bit wetter and a bit colder, but it's still, it's, it's, it's lovely. What's the weather like right now? It's actually quite cold. It's quite bright and quite pleasant, but it's it's gone. It's turned quite cold in the last last couple of days. It's been quite mild and quite pleasant, and now it's just gone. Uh, and we we where I live, it's the warmest, probably the warmest part of the of the UK, uh, right on the south coast. Just in the same way that you know southern states like Florida are warmer, obviously, with where you are. But mm-hmm. um, it, it's it, but it's still cold this time of year. And um, we're expecting a bit of a big freeze coming over from um, from sort of sort of Baltic area from sort of Russia is coming in. They call it the beast from the east. Oh, wow. It was really cold. <laughs> I think that's in the next couple of days. So we're ready for that. That's awesome. I, I'm in pretty much like the center of America. I'm in Missouri. Right. And right now it is, let's see, it's like 30 degrees Fahrenheit, negative uh, one Celsius. Right. So it was also very cold, but it's been sunny yeah. recently, which is nice. It's kind of a, you look outside, it makes you think it's going to be warm out, but it's freezing. Yeah. I don't mind the cold. When it's cold, but bright, that's, that's lovely. I mean, that's great weather. You can, you can, you know, at least you can get outside, you can dress up warm, but, um, and it's bright and sunny. That's, that's the that lovely kind of weather. I like that kind of weather. So. <laughs> well, getting into more about you, um, okay. I did a little bit of, of, you know, like research, correct me if I'm wrong on oh, anything, yeah. but I would love to know more about your band. Oh, the band? <laughs> yeah, tell me. How did, you find, how did you find out about that? Well, well I, did, I did mention it, don't I? I mentioned it in the, in, the, in the biography, in the book, I think, very briefly. You do. Yeah. Like, at the very end, you mentioned that you were part of a band called, what was it called? Boat Thief? Boat Thief. Yes. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, was, that was a long time ago. That was in a, another life. So, <laughs> uh, not still going anymore, but uh, but yeah, we we had some kind of minor success here in the here in, in Britain, um, I suppose back in the nineties or something like that. I think it feels like the nineties. Um, so we had quite a, quite a bit of radio play, and we toured around and played quite quite a bit of clubs in London. Um, yeah, and um, that was fun fun times. But real life and family and proper jobs and the requirement of earning proper money sort of kicks in and those kind of heady days of trying to be a rock and roll star (laughs) have to go go by the wayside and have to earn a proper living. Right, right. So, So, uh, yeah, they were good times. So then is it true you were in advertising? Uh, Yeah, I was, that was always my career choice. So, um, in the background. So even though I was in the band at the time, I was, I was trying to, um, earn a living as well in advertising. So, uh, and then when the band finally, uh, ended, uh, I got fully back into the advertising world as a copywriter, so as a freelance writer. So, um, and I still do a little bit of that just to sort of supplement the, you know, the writing of books. Um, so, um, yeah, so I work for advertising agencies in London and uh, up north in Manchester and in Ireland, Belfast, Dublin. Uh, so that's my 
you know, that's my background and my training as a, as a freelance copywriter in advertising, writing advertising campaigns. Right. That's awesome. Um, I studied, like I said, I have a degree in English that I, so I studied English in college, but my, my last year I decided I'd wanted to go into advertising. So that's why I'd asked you about that because I thought it was such a cool way to bring writing into a very practical use. Yeah, well, it's really, I, I mean, writing commercially for such a long period of time, you know, most of my working career, it, it, what it does, it's a bit like being a journalist, I guess. It's, it's a job where you have to sit down at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, right through to five, six o'clock, and you just have to write. You are, you know, you, your job is to write X hundred or thousand or whatever words. And so it's a very good, you know, regimen for just getting on with writing. And a lot of people, I think a lot of writers and authors sort of struggle because it, they've maybe not done it before. They've gone from another career and thought, right, I'll write a book now. And then that whole thing of sitting down at a blank screen or a piece of paper and writing, you know, a, a good number of words, you know, trying to write half a chapter or something is very hard for them. Um, and I think when you've got that experience of just knowing you have a deadline and you have to write something in, in terms of copywriting because you won't get paid otherwise, you know, that's your job. It's, it's a good way in. It's a good way of just getting on with that sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of making yourself right, you know. And sometimes you get to the end of the day and you go, well, that's not probably my best work, but at least you've done it. You can, you can scrap it. You can start again, but it, at least you're doing something. You're always moving forward and you're always writing. So it's, um, it's, uh, it was a good start, you know. So I, I don't have any problem with sitting down and when it comes to writing my books. It's kind of, I think, a bit easier for me to sit down at nine o'clock and say, right, I'm going to write a chapter today and just get on with it. And, and I'm not going to stop for now. I'll have a bit of lunch, but I'll, I'll work right through till five o'clock and I'll write as much as I can in that time. So I think I'm quite fast at writing because of that, because of that background in copywriting. Awesome. That, that was going to be one of my questions, what that transition was like from going from copywriting to novel writing it. And I, I love how you said it. It helps that you're so used to just sitting down and writing words because that is the hardest part is just getting words on paper sometimes. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think most copy, I've met a copywriter who isn't a frustrated author. I, I just think it's part, it just comes with the territory. You know, you're, you're, you're writing creatively every day to a specific brief from someone else, but you're, you're constantly thinking, ah, oh, I could do this for myself. You know, I've got this creative spark. I love writing. I love language. I love being playful with language. I love communicating an idea through language. Um, so I, I think most, most copywriters I've known have got some kind of desire to write some form of their own expression in, in terms of a book or a story or a screenplay or, or a, or a theater play or something like that. I just, I, I think it's part and parcel of being that a creative writer. Right. That's so true. And I remember myself in college trying to communicate that to a lot of my peers who were studying English and maybe going on to do doctorates in literature or linguistics or, you know, going to become, you know, proper writers like that. Um, And then I would say to my professors, you know, I'm really thinking about advertising. And they didn't always get it how that that's such a, a creative world as well. And yeah. um, so I, I love that. I love that you have that background in advertising. 
tell, tell me a little bit about the process of writing the Somnambula installments as far as like what, where did the first idea come from? What made you want to start writing these novels? Okay, um, well, I suppose, well, it's, it's, it's been a long gestating idea. It's been there for a long time. It just came as a, as a, the basic, um, kernel of the idea I probably had more than 10 years ago. Um, and it just sat mm-hmm. there. And I, I kind of mentioned it to a few people. I mentioned it to my, my wife and, um, and she was very supportive. I think that's a, that's, I, sometimes you don't know whether an idea is a good idea. You think mm-hmm. that, you know, have I, have I borrowed that from somewhere? Have I heard it before? Have I, so you, so you want to let it just kind of gestate for a long period of time just to make sure it's yours, to make sure it feels genuine, make sure it feels like it's, it's got legs. Um, and, um, I think at the time financially, it just wouldn't have been a good idea for me to, to just try and spend lots of time writing. Mm-hmm. Um, she couldn't afford to do that. I was busy working and, uh, had family and children and stuff. And, uh, and then you just, life kind of changes and you get to a point where you think, actually, I can afford the time now. Um, and I can, you know, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, sort of earn as much as I need, needed to earn back then with children and bringing up a family and everything. I just got to a point where I can get on with this now and I need to do it. It just burned away. The idea just burned away at me for so long that it just became a need, became a, a, an actual, I had to do it. There was nothing, there was no question of not, never not doing it. Um, and so I just thought, right, I've got to plan this out, start planning the, the, this whole world. And I suppose when you're trying to, when you're writing fantasy, which, which this is kind of like supernatural fantasy, mm-hmm. you have to, you have to create an entire, universe yes you know, if you think of lord of the rings you think of harry potter you think of anything in that in that vein it's an entire world you know middle earth or whatever is an entire universe that's all interrelated and interconnected it's got its own ecosystem and, and everything you know it's right. kind of so you have to you've got a lot of creating to do you've got a lot of backstory to do you've got a lot of rules uh, um, when it's a sort of semi-magical place you have to create rules it can't just be anything goes because that's not how fantasy works it, it has to have internal logic and, and it has to exist it has to be believable even though it's slightly unbelievable right right uh, so so there's a lot of work to do and a lot of just letting it settle in my mind and, and, and letting things um come become more concrete before i could actually start writing a story um so that's kind of why it took so long um and um yeah it was just the desire to to write something and I and I think part of it was having children and and wanting to wanting to explore the kind of the the, the notion of good and evil and spirituality and, and and that side of that side of things. You know, there's plenty of stuff out there that's quite I suppose supernatural stuff that's quite dark mm-hmm. and quite negative for young people. I wanted to write something quite hopeful. You know, the sort of the story of good and evil, but the very a very hopeful one and right. how things are sort of battling against each other and how we can make choices, good choices, um, in, in that kind of battle. So when you said, um, like, over 10 years ago or whatever, where you just had kind of that seed of the idea, what was it at that point? What was that that first idea that would later become this whole series? Mm. That's, it's, it's hard to know. It's kind of such a long time ago. It just, and it was very small and very slow. Mm-hmm. I think it was just, I think it was that whole idea of, okay, so much literature, um, 
not even just supernatural literature, but 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 so much literature is is about so much the basic story, the roots of so much of our human stories, the history of story, is about the battle between good and evil, dark and, and light. You know, it's, right. whether it's Star Wars or you know or whatever it is, you know, it's always kind of this idea of of you know good versus evil. And I was trying to think, what's a fresh take on that? How can I how, how can I how can I do that? So that's how it started. You know, what can I what can I bring to that? Because ultimately, that's what a lot of those stories break down to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was like, how can we tell a story? And it and it just started dawning on me about this world where angels and demons are fighting. And I thought, well, that's very feels very distant. How can we connect that in a human way? And then uh, the idea of having two children, two teenage children on earth who were able to enter into that world and bridge the gap to that world um when they slept they entered it so so the idea of them being sleepwalkers sorry about that everyone we had some minor audio issues you know with us doing this call from so far away i'm honestly pretty happy with the quality we have but bear with us a little bit so uh you were talking about just how you were doing a fresh take on the good and evil. And that's when you came up with the idea for sleepwalkers and to have two children being able to enter a realm where they can interact with the good and evil fight that is going on. And honestly, that is the, that is the crux of the, this series. It's what makes it so original. I remember seeing before I read it, a lot of, very positive reviews. All of your reviews have been very positive on Amazon, but a lot of C.S. Lewis comparisons. Yeah, there were a few, which was which is great. I mean, I mean, I, I you know, C.S. Lewis and, a, and even someone mentioned J.R. Tolkien, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, and, and, and Philip Pullman, and you, you kind of thinking, wow, I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure I deserve that, but you know, <laughs> it's very black. Um, and I, and I, I suppose it's always going to be. Um, especially you mentioned C.S. Lewis, you know, about children crossing a kind of bridge into another magical world. And I suppose that um, that is, that's what's going on to a degree. So there's always going to be that sort of slight comparison with it. Right. I'd like to think it's a whole different take and, a, and, and, the, and the world that they enter is very, very different. It is. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, uh, but, but very flattering to be compared to, Right, right. I I saw those reviews and I remember like, well, well, I'll order it. I will read it. And I, you know, that's awesome. I hope it, it, you know, stands up to those comparisons. And it, it really did. And I was actually very surprised with how original the world building was, probably because I, I, I read all of the, those comparisons. So I was expecting a more, um, lion, witch in the wardrobe kind of world. Um, yeah. So how did you do all of that? How did you decide what Somnambula was going to be? And especially I think the characterization in this book is amazing because you have to decide, you know, what is an angel going to look like? What is an angel going to sound like? What kind of personality do they have? So how did you go about all of that? Um, that's, that's a very, very good question. I think it's... Um, <laughs> A lot of time, a lot of patience, a lot of long walks, and just mulling it over, trying to just um, 
um, just trying to develop some kind of logic to a world. You've got to set, but as I was just saying before, you've got to set very specific rules. Um, you can't just have any character just able to do anything they want because it's in this kind of supernatural world. It has to be limited. There has to be rules. There has to be logic. Um, and so I suppose the first thing you, you start is with is what's your story? What, what do you want? What's the, um, what do you want this to communicate? You know, what's its basic theme and message? And then, and then set that and then work back from there and think about how does the world support that? How do you, how do you create a world that enables that story to unfold? So it, it's just a lot of, um, file and error in your head, you know, lots of scribbling ideas down, lots of, and I think I'm a very visual person, you know, we mm-hmm. talked about movies earlier and, 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 mm-hmm. and I suppose I, very, I think very visually. So I, I try and think what is going to be spectacular in people's minds. When I try and describe something, I want to take someone to a place they've never been to before, some, somewhere really. So creating set pieces, very, very kind of cinematically. I think mm-hmm. I, I wanted a very cinematic experience, even though it's a book. You know, I want to describe it in a way that makes people see this huge expanse, this cinemascope kind of world and so each scene each place um so sometimes inspired by real places that i wanted the whole idea i suppose of somnambula is that it's like a uh, a sort of supernatural heavenly reflection of earth so i wanted it sort of to be very earth-like but in a very exaggerated weird way so there were there were places there's a scene in the book that's based in London, mm-hmm. but a very bizarre, exaggerated um, war sort of war period, sort of Second World War period kind of you know sort of a representation of London, this bombed out, blitz kind of London, but everything's taller and craggier and more convoluted and slightly demonic, but it's still London, it's still recognisably London, and there's a few, there's a few places that I've just kind of visited places I know in my head that had a magical effect on me, a, a real place. I thought, wouldn't that be great if we just exaggerate that and bring it into this world? And oh, right. Then, so bought it and make, so you're playing with that idea of dreams. You know when you have a dream and you 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 know the place in your dream, but it's not quite the same. It's exaggerated and odd and you wake up and you're a bit disturbed by it because you thought, well that was my I don't know, maybe you went back to your old school in a dream but it wasn't your old school. There was something odd about it and it was either huge and strange and dark or, or you know. So it's that idea of what the dreams, how the dreams kind of contort and, and, and affect the, the real world that we live in um, and, and to create something slightly disturbing so that we look at we look at life differently again. Right. Well, and especially with how um, your two main characters, Bina and Titus, are able to affect that realm based on their own yeah. experiences. So there, yeah. that, that was really cool as well. Um, and, and I should mention you, when writing this book, you're creating almost like three different worlds within your story because it is a, it is like a frame story. So you have what's going on in the very beginning and then the epilogue at the end with Alec reading this book of dreams. And mm-hmm. then you have the story going on in the real world within the Book of Dreams, as yeah. well as the realm of Somnambula. Have I been saying it wrong? Somnambula? Well, I, I, <laughs> I say I say Somnambula, but because because the, to be a sleepwalker is a somnambulist. 
Right. Um, and uh, so I say somnambulum. I don't mind how people say it. People will say it however they want. That's fine. I don't, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's all supernatural and weird, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so the, it was cool seeing how um, not only you created that world, but how then you brought some of those creatures, like the yeah. angels or whatever, into uh, reality as well. Yeah, yeah. I wanted that. I wanted it to be quite quite layered and complex. I didn't want it to just be a kind of a, a, a two-dimensional supernatural world, like one place. And I like to say, Lord of the Rings all takes place in Middle Earth, doesn't it? And that's great. You know, just, I'm not, I'm not, you know, no problems with the, the <laughs> uh, And it's a very rich and wonderful world. But that's all it is. It's just there that your entire experience is is you're being you know submerged into that world. I wanted normality as well. I wanted Earth and normal earth and and the places of earth and then that being reflected in this supernatural place in somnambula um and and having them having you know taking place at the same times so they're reflected and mirrored and then this other idea of being another person another place who's reading all about this stuff in a book it sounds very complicated and hopefully it isn't as complicated as it's sounding now uh, when you read uh, <laughs> it's not <laughs> uh, the whole story that you're, you're, you're reading is actually taking place in, in a book called the Book of Dreams, mm-hmm. um, and which enables this kind of idea of it to continue through. So there's a whole series of Book of Dreams. There have been Book of Dreams from, from the dawn of time, and, and we're entering, with, with, with my first book, we're entering into the 64th Book of Dreams. Right. So the idea there is that it gets this sense that this Book of Dreams has been written, has been written for well, eons, you know, uh, but we're entering it at this one particular point in sort of 2000 and, you know, something, the early 21st century. Um, <laughs> and, and we'll go from there. So the second book, The Tree of Locks, my second book, mm-hmm. is about what happens in the 65th book of dreams. And then the third book, which I'm just starting now, um, tentatively titled The Legion of Whisperers, um, Ooh. is going to, what happens in the 66th book of dreams, um, so it could just go on and on. Well, that's great. I mean, you've set yourself up for, you know, a lot of books that you can write uh, in theory, which is awesome. But it, it also just works so well within the, the novel. I haven't read the second one yet. I can't wait. But right. I, I did notice that at the end. It's like, well, now we have another book to read. Both uh, I have another book to read, as in your second book, but also within the stories, we have another book to read. Um, right. So, and you, you mentioned while doing all the world building, drawing from your own experiences and places that you've gone to, um, but how much of it was research? How much research did you have to do as far as um, places, geography, language, theology, you know, what kind of prep work went into this? Um, that's another great question. I think the only, most of it is just imagination and fantasy sort of 95 percent of it but yeah in terms of some of the locations like the book starts so the first book um the rise of the sleepwalkers that you've you've read leanna is um it starts the story the earth story starts in venice so um i had to go to venice a lot obviously and do a lot of research which is really tough Okay. Europe, Britain, it's 
it's easier for you to just kind of leap across the English Channel and go to um, and go to Italy. Uh, so, um, but I did actually specifically go around thinking how you know what places and locations will work. Let's look at a little bit of the history of some of the places. How would that connect to my story? Um, but but not most of it is just stuff that I've picked up, you know, and I just kind of play. So I'm I'm incorporating things that I know rather than specifically going out of my way to research anything particularly new. Um, and of course, with it being a fantasy world, I can sort of make it what I want to make it, you know. And it's, so it is kind of using your imagination to to take people to a a place as long as it serves story. What about with like the, especially with the angelic realm with the angels, I know you used like Raphael is an archangel. And so there are some aspects of religion, but it's not a, a religious work at all. It is fantasy. So did you, how much of re- religion did you keep in mind when creating the angels or even naming them? And how much of it, you know, was most of it just made up? Um, there's just a couple of things. I think Raphael's probably, I wanted to have a few touchstones that felt real, mm-hmm. but mostly not. So there's a couple of mentions there, but I could have put, I could have put an angel called Gabriel in there, of course, you know, uh, but I just wanted that Raphael is a, is, you know, is a, is, is a known angel name. Um, and I kind of wanted, um, just a couple of things to make it connect slightly so that people thought, oh, there's an element of reality to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but it's but it's predominantly a, a new world we're taking to be people to to introduce them to completely new ideas and new thoughts, um, and so I, I didn't want too much in there. Now I mean I, I do I, I know I know my kind of Bible quite well, and you know there's some, there are some references in there, and I think there's some one of the things there's a, there's a there's a great I mean I don't know you know how well. You know, whether you've got any sort of biblical knowledge or anything, there's a great, in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, there's an amazing reference to angels actually fighting in a, in a, in a, in a kind of, in a heavenly realm, mm. fighting demonic powers. So it, it, that had a, that had an effect on me thinking, wow, what, you know, this world, there's a world, there's this potential world where there are, where there's a battle, where there is a battle going on. And wouldn't it be great to explore that? What actually, what is happening there? What, how, what does it look like? And of course, you don't know. So it's all still to a degree fantasy, you know, and, and, and made up or imagination just to kind of reflect what, what would it be like if there were, you know, it's a world where angels and demons are fighting and how do we get into that world? Well, we get into that world via our two teenage characters who sleep and then find themselves in this world. They're not actually dreaming. Um, they're actually really there or their souls or spirits have been transported to this place where they're able to do things that the angels can't do and help them fight this battle. So it's a, this kind of conduit, this way into that place. So a little bit of research, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't want it to be a quote unquote religious book. You know, that's, that's not its goal. I don't, I'm not trying to kind of, you know, sort of um, preach heavily to anybody about anything <laughs> specific. About. It's more a sense of, look, what if there is a world of good and evil? What if there is, what if there, what if good and evil exist as as specific things? You know, as a, what 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 does that mean to me as a person? You know, it's not it's not actually um, just a theory. You know, it's what if what if it's true? What what choices do I have to make if there are real kind of battles going on 
that affect what's going on here. Right. Well, and that makes a lot of sense because while reading it, it it doesn't strike you as being a religious book as far as that sort of message, but it has just enough of those, um, it's it's just familiar enough to make you relate to it. Right. That's exactly what I want to, I I love that I did, it's a bit like dreams themselves. I mentioned before about dreams. When we dream, they're, they're familiar. We dream familiar things and we dream about familiar people and familiar places, but they're not quite, they're eerily different, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and we're not quite the same. And, and, and you know, uh, everything about dreams is just slightly odd, but yet there's enough reality to connect us to it. And I thought, well, how do we tell a story that it has enough reality and enough little touchstones that, that we kind of go, oh, yeah, that feels real. And so, you know, there are real locations in there, like London and um, and a, a couple of other places that, that I loved sort of seeing and wanted to put in this book. Um, particularly, um, this scene where um, it's sort of at sea, where there are these very strange, rusty kind of sea forts that uh, come out of the sea. Mm-hmm. That's basically that's based on a real place in the in the Thames estuary, just outside London. Um, and it's eerie enough as it is in real life. I mean, this is one of the spookiest, strangest scenes you will ever see uh, if you see the, uh, these red sand sea forts. You know what? Red I, you I, it? I googled it as soon as I yeah. read it. <laughs> and they are so weird. They and are. Straight away, straight away, they're like something slightly out of a nightmare mm-hmm. or a dream or something. And I thought, well, let's really put them into a, into a sort of nightmare scenario, into a dreamlike scenario and exaggerate them and inhabit them with, with demonic, you know, forces that are firing things out of the, you know, and so uh, that I want those things that make it feel like, oh, I, I know this and something in the pit of your stomach kind of goes, this is eerily real, but it's not. It's also fantastical. And I love that combination. I love it. That's when, I think that's when fantasy works. If fantasy is so far out there, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what with certain science fiction, I guess, it's so far removed that it's like, well, I don't recognize that. I don't, I don't feel anything for it because it doesn't quite feel real. Well, um, that's so interesting that you say because I, I have that debate with people a lot because I, I typically do not gravitate towards a lot of fantasy because of that very yeah. reason. In fact, I actually normally say I'm more of a science fiction uh, fan because it seems to be more rooted in reality if you think of, like, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, whether you're talking about George Orwell's kind of science fiction yeah. or you're even talking about Star Trek or something like that. There's something very human about it still. There's no yeah. loss of humanity. And when you get into these fantastical realms where there's so many different monsters and creatures and the world is so far removed, I, I lose interest sometimes. And I never yeah. lost interest in the world that you created because it was so grounded in our reality. Good, good. Oh, that's great. I mean, yes, I didn't want to put too many. I mean, I could have inhabited the whole thing with monsters, but there are very few, you know, of mm-hmm. anything you would call specifically monstrous in it. Um, there are exaggerations of things and, and, and there are some, you know, there are some elements of that, but I, I, it's not completely inhabited. It's mainly sort of human-ish kind of interaction, whether they're demonically human or angelically human or 
just the actual human teenage characters who enter Somnambula. It, and then obviously all everything that's going on Earth is completely human. You know, all the characters there are very real. Um, and so I, I wanted that very much. It's not, I'm not trying to take you to Middle Earth with orcs and, and dwarves and hobbits, you know, as, that's fine, but that's not where this is. And it, you know, it's not, you know, it's not sort of vampires and, and, and zombies. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a fairly grounded, hopefully, like you say, and I'm glad you, I'm glad you picked up on that. Yes, that, that's one of the things I love most about it and what I find myself telling people when I talk about your book to other people I'm like yeah it's it's young adult fantasy but it's you know it's more than that it's it's very rooted in reality I'd say it's Somnambula itself is it's allegorical more than fantastical yeah 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 it's allegorical and and I think I, I'm trying to walk a fine line between allegorical and literal and, mm-hmm. and, and it, that that gets difficult sometimes because you can teeter from one, over one to the other. But you know, I'm trying to create something and say, what if? What if all of this was possibly real? You know, um, but but yeah, there are allegorical kind of ideas, like the idea that you know these 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 teenagers don't literally are not in in real life able to enter this place. You know, um, that's kind of an allegorical aspect to it. So um, that's the that's the one bit that sort of you have to kind of take a leap with and go, okay, you know, that's that's the bit that feels very fantastical. Mm-hmm. So, how much of yourself did you put into this book? So, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't know you, and I know no. that uh, people, like students especially, love to say, "Oh, I think this character is the author." You know, yeah. Is there a character yeah. like that? And um, is it Murray? Because that's who I would guess. Oh, uh, uh, um, that's it. I know what I did. I have I've never been asked that question or, <laughs> or thought about that question. And I think if you'd asked me uh, without mentioning that that particular name, Murray, if you just said which character is, is you, I would say, well, I don't think any of them are. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a writer. I'm, I'm writing. I'm, I'm writing up my imagination. And I'm, but when you said Murray, I was thinking, well, maybe, maybe there is. Maybe if any, obviously, I, I, I don't think I'm either of the teenage characters. No, and I want I want them to be quite exaggerated characters, um, and and um, and sort of flawed characters with backstories, you know, and, and sort of a tra- sort of certain amount of tragic backstory that doesn't represent me. But I suppose in terms of the paternal, if you're going to write about teenagers and you've had children and you've got you've got children, and maybe that paternal protective character, I suppose maybe is is is. Presume, yeah, it's probably obviously the one. I'm incredibly, I'm, I'm going to gravitate to more, I suppose, and it's going to more my age and more. So, um, so probably, probably, and we won't spoil anything for anyone who's not read the book. About, no, yeah, no, anyway. he was, he was great. He was my favorite character because he's very rooted in reality. His sense of humor uh, really yeah. helps as well. Um, but I, I saw it as like his, um, you know, he. He watches over the teenagers in that paternal sense. He's also able to read from the Book of Dreams, just like you wrote this Book of Dreams. Yeah. And he does have a collection of band T-shirts, and I knew you were in a band, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, you've got me there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Hi, Liana, can you hear me? Yeah, there we go. Okay. <laughs> we're back. I don't know, where were we? Are you saying the only image you had was on the back of the on the back of the book? Yes, I had one image of you of the back of the book, and then your your profile picture on Instagram. <laughs> um, but I I I 
found myself just because I, you know, nobody else would really have this experience, but just because I read this book with the intention of speaking with you about it, I found myself using that image as a placeholder for Murray a little bit. <laughs> All right. Okay. It's funny, isn't it? Well, we bring so much to books, you know, um, don't we? We're kind of, you know, so I've loved seeing someone's brain when they're reading a book that you've read. Um, and to see how, how they pictured the characters and the world. And I guess it would always be quite different. The, the basics mm -hmm. would be the same. You know, hopefully the writer, you're describing it in a way, you know, that will be consistent for most people. But that you will always bring a lot to it yourself. You know, you'll bring, you know, I don't know what, I think sometimes I imagine when I read a book that hasn't been made into a film, mm -hmm. so I've got no preconceptions of what, you know, what the characters look like. I think I probably inhabit it by a combination of actors, famous actors and, and friends. You, you feel like you have to project an image onto those, onto those faces, those blank faces, if you like, you, yeah. so, so that you know what they look like, you know what they dress like. But that would always be slightly different for everybody who reads a book. So it, it's fascinating when you write a book, you just, you kind of want to know what is in everyone's heads. You know, how would you, if you could project this as a movie from how would it, how different would it look to the wire cord in my brain, you know? So it, it's, it would be very, very interesting to see that. Well, speaking of that, if, if your series were to become a movie, uh, specifically the first one, Rise of the Sleepwalkers, do you have any actors or actresses in mind for any of them? Well, mm. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I have. I, 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 I purposely tried not to do that. Good. Or else I'll start, I'll start probably trying to write them like those people, I think. Hmm. Um, I certainly don't have for the, for the teenagers because I, I, I wouldn't know what teenage actors particularly are, are there that could play those roles. <laughs> um, I, I know what they look like very much in my head, but I, um, in turn, I think, I, I think, Probably Murray, if, you know, I think I did have an idea with Murray. Um, and I, I probably saw him as a slightly younger Nicolas Cage. Okay. Maybe. Oh, Not, I could maybe see that. Maybe a younger sort of 40-year-old Nicolas Cage. So that, that sort of, you know, quite tall, quite light, um, athletic, slight, you know, I don't know. Uh, that's kind of, I'm, I'm, I think I went through a few different people as well. <laughs> but at one point I was kind of thinking roughly. But then I tried to just, sort of dissociate myself from that so I didn't start describing Nicolas Cage, you know, <laughs> specifically. I was trying to describe the character that I had in my head, but um, I, I, I don't have a particular, um, I think I did with the Santu character, which is one of, which was the, the angel um, character that visits Earth to talk to Murray. Yes. Um, and he's, he's kind of his angelic liaison. And I can't remember the name of the actor now. And I think the reason... Um, do you I think, do you know a film called The Adjustment Bureau? Yes. The Adjustment Bureau, it's got Matt Damon in it as a politician. Right. Um, and uh, and uh, all kinds of weird stuff starts happening to him, like his life's being manipulated. There's a character in that um, who's, who kind of um, is, is helping to, who is slightly controlling his life. Um, and he, it is like a sort of angel kind of character, although it's never described as that. And, and I think I had him slightly in my head, but that's maybe because he played this, you know, subliminally, I'm thinking of this kind of slightly angelic kind of character who was able to control 
Matt Damon's life slightly. And I can't remember the guy's name. He's, he's actually in the Avengers as well. I think he plays one of the um, he plays the Falcon character in in the Avengers films. Um, oh, uh, um, Anthony Mackie. Anthony Mackie. Yes. So I think I had him slightly in my head. Oh, that's great, so uh, perfect. Uh, yeah, he's got a lovely, calm demeanor about him, which I really kind of liked. Very cool, very kind of, and it just very together. And I wanted that kind right. of character, this calming character, sort of. Um, so he's he's very where Murray's a little bit more kind of. He's got more light and spark about him, and he gets a bit angrier and a bit, mm-hmm. you know, he's a bit, you know, he's a bit sort of um, long in the tooth now and sort of a little bit cynical. Plus, I wanted Sans to to be this very calm, sort of um, peaceful kind of connection to a nambular world for him. So I think Anthony Mackie maybe slightly <laughs> is in my mind there. Plus, but, Anthony Mackie could totally pull off the purple suit. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sorry, we had another brief audio technical difficulty, but we are back in it. And I do have another important question for you. So (laughs) normally on this podcast at the top of the show, we have a themed drink for the book that we are discussing. Themed drink? Yes. And normally it is an adult beverage. (laughs) Adult beverage sounds good. I can I can totally relate to an adult beverage. Yes, right. <laughs> but of course, today with there being a time difference, I called you at 10 a.m. my time. Yeah. And unfortunately, my day job, normally this is my day off, they called me and they need me to come in later today. So I was not able to partake in an adult beverage of any sort. Okay. Um. So this whole episode, I've just been drinking tea. I was drinking Earl Grey. Okay, sounds good. But what is the perfect companion beverage for reading your story? Well, firstly, it probably sounds a little bit wrong to a certain degree talking about drinking an adult beverage. <laughs> so something that is, is predominantly aimed at you know, the younger market or young adult market. So yes. I certainly don't want to be um, uh, promoting underage drinking to anybody, but... <laughs> for those that do, for those who are of a drinking age, um, which is certainly me, because um, um, I know it's uh, what, what what's the drinking age in Missouri? Was is it twenty one? Yes. You're right. Okay, because here in the UK it's eighteen. <laughs> so you can drink. So, so some of my readers are able to to drink. Right. Um, okay. So so if we just scrub, if we just kind of forget the the sort of you know the slightly dodgy aspect of. Of promoting alcohol to underage people. <laughs> well, and it doesn't uh, have to be an alcoholic drink either. Oh, it doesn't? No. Okay, it doesn't have to. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, like, I, I read a, a, we discussed The Giver by Lois Lowry on this podcast, and that's a young adult book, and it's very wintry and Christmas time, so for that, I drink hot chocolate. Okay. Okay, well, that's, I, I, you know, what, you've sidelined me with that question. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not prepared. So my advance warning of that question, so I could give you a really clever literary answer, but I can't, so let me think about, well, I'll tell you what, because it starts off in Venice, mm-hmm. and this, this will, I guess there'll be a non-alcoholic version of this, so I think um, a Bellini, so um, Ernest oh. Hemingway, writer, um, spent a lot of time in Venice, and he made famous, I think in fact, he, he, 
I don't know whether I'm right in saying he invented the Bellini. Uh, <laughs> invent, there's, a, there's a very famous bar in Venice called Harry's Bar, which isn't in the book. Mm. Um, I've been to it a few times, and it's great. A really proper old Venetian little bar right by the canal. Um, and you can go in there and get a Bellini Prosecco, really nice Italian spheres. You know, Prosecco is a... I don't think Prosecco is very big and huge here. It's an alternative pain, not quite as dry and slightly mm-hmm. sweeter and fruity version of champagne but it's made in Italy in northern Italy um, and you mix that with with a, a sort of a pulped up um, white peach so it's the juice of, of some white fresh white peaches and it just makes a very simple stylish little fizzy sweet drink but you can do you can do a non-alcoholic version with sparkling water um, so I'll go for I'll go for I'll go for Bellini perfect that's a, such a great answer um, Bellinis are great I I thought I definitely had that before because I was like it's the peach one right so yeah yeah, yeah. peach it's very simple just peach literally it's peaches uh, white peach kind of just whizzed up you know into a pulp and mixed with uh, prosecco or sparkling some kind of sparkling wine but it should be prosecco really which is which is specifically Italian northern Italian mm-hmm. sort of champagne so then my final question. Um, Normally on this podcast, I always say I am not afraid of spoilers and I, because a lot of times I'm doing the classics, I'm talking about the classics, so there's no point in worrying about spoilers because everyone sort of knows them and we're just discussing them. Obviously, for your sake, we haven't gone too much into the plot and I haven't spoiled much because I want my listeners to actually go by and read your books because they're fantastic. However, one spoiler that I could not help but reveal is the very end of the book actually ends with the phrase, let's go get that drink, right? Or let's get that drink. And I want to know, since we are on that topic and it is very uh, thematic for Top Shelf Lit, what drink do Alec and the professor get at the end of the novel? Oh, when I think about it, it's a terrible line for the end of a young adult book, isn't it, really? Um, <laughs> well, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, um, I, I, uh, let's think, what, what, I think Venetia Pitkin, mm-hmm. who is the professor who, 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 you know, who is involved in getting that drink with, uh, along with, um, the other character, I won't say too much about character names and, um, I would say that she wants a whiskey, <laughs> probably a whiskey woman, although doesn't have it very often, and probably one sip of whiskey would send her completely crazy. <laughs> um, so it's something she doesn't often drink, but she's just she's just experienced this the most amazing story, and she's now going to be transported into a whole new world. She just needs something to kind of deal with it all and steady her nerves and, and, and everything. But I think one sip of a whiskey that she that she'll have at some London bar um, near the uh, near the uh, the, hist- the, uh, the National Museum would send her loopy. Um, whereas I think um, Alec Branco is probably got and that's another character thrown in there for people who haven't read the book um, is probably going to have a just cold beer of some kind. <laughs> it'll probably it'll probably be very disappointed because it'll it'll be a, it'll be an English beer and it'll be flat and and warm and have no head on it. So um, that's what most Americans complain about British beer when they have one in a pub. So um, 
I think no. I tell you what he's going to do. He's going to he's going to he's going to chance the Guinness. He's going to go into a, a, a pub in London. He's going to try a, a pint of Guinness, which he's probably never had in America. <laughs> so, Perfect. A Guinness and a whiskey. A Guinness and a whiskey. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Again, I'm sorry about the audio issues, but that really was a lot of fun. And I am very grateful for you taking a chance on my little podcast and talking about your book. It's been an absolute pleasure, Diana. Thank you for, for inviting me. That's, that's, that's amazing. So I'm, I'm just happy to talk about it to anyone who's prepared to listen. So <laughs> you, you must send me a link to your, to, to, um, to your, um, uh, to your podcast so I can have a listen and and, uh, and, and subscribe and listen to you in the future. So uh, let, let me know what, how to, um, what I can. Definitely. Uh, once this is up, I will send you the link so that you can listen and share with whoever you want. Um, but for everyone else listening, you can find me at Top Shelf Lit on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Um, SoundCloud is where most people listen. So... That's normally the link that I send out. Um, And you can follow the podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Top Shelf Lit Pod. And where can they find you, Damien? Well, you can find the books if you just search Amazon. Just go to Amazon and search. um, So you can either search by my my name, which is Damien Scott. So D-A-M-I-A-N. So Mm -hmm. Damien Scott. And you'll find those on Amazon, or you can search via the book name, which is the first one is Rise of the Sleepwalkers, and the second book is The Tree of Locks. So you can find those either as you know, buy it as an ebook, as a Kindle, or as a paperback um, on Amazon, or you can find me on Instagram uh, as Damien Scott Word Food, which is kind of my professional name as a copywriter. So. Um, but yeah, you'll find me on there, Damien Scott, one way or another on Instagram. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Any any last remarks for our listeners? Um, go and buy my book. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, I'm about to say that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah. Go Do. And, uh, give it a try. I mean, uh, yeah, just give it a try and let me know what you think. I'd love to know. So um, send me your comments and, uh, yeah, post your review on Amazon and... That'd be great. And, and just thanks so much for allowing me to talk about it. Yeah, it's been, been fun. No problem. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week. Bye.